Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. (laughs) Today, we're going to take a more humane look at abortion. This is one of my final interviews in Chicago. Not only did Connie interview me, her and my dad sat down, and now I'm interviewing her. Connie Polk, I met on the Sniff Spotlight series, which is another podcast that I was producing. She was a stellar guest. Our relationship has blossomed, and she really opens up in this episode. Connie Polk, it is an honor to have you on the Better Call Daddy show. It's interesting that you got into emergency preparedness, because I feel like both professionally and personally, you've had to get yourself out of some disasters. Yeah, that's very true. (laughs) Very true. Have you ever thought about that? No, I never have. Maybe that's why I'm attracted to it. Personal disasters, a lot of them through the years, from early on in my childhood all the way through adult life, divorce, having to deal with raising a daughter on my own. Yeah. Raising two kids that were not my own from teenagers. That's tough. <sighs> teenagers just <laughs> tough as it is. It's somebody else's. Yeah. How did you do that? Well, they were literally dropped off at different times on our front doorstep. My stepdaughter was dropped off at three o'clock in the morning and my stepson was taken at three o'clock in the morning. And then my stepdaughter was dropped off with one bag of trash bag of clothes, and that's it. So it was just, it was crazy. It was crazy days. Their mom was not really well balanced, had some issues with drugs. When they came to me, they had their issues. I did the best that I could. My son still has some issues. He's 40 some, 41 years old now. Oh my gosh. He's doing okay, but not what I would have thought he would have done. So, but my other daughter is in Catskills in New York. She is a store manager. She's doing really well. I've got a granddaughter. Yeah, I'm old enough to have a granddaughter. And then my son has three children, rather actually four. So I've got altogether five grandchildren. I know, I'm too young. (laughs) I'm too young. So you've gotten some fruits of your labor. Yeah, I love my grandkids. They're older now too. They're not little kids anymore. So my granddaughter is 19. My one grandson is, he's in high school. So a freshman in high school. And then the youngest one just turned eight. And then I have a granddaughter in New York who is 12, going to be 13 this year. And then the one other grandchild is nine. I can't wait until my daughter, my my biological daughter has children, but I'm not pushing that. (laughs) She's only 23. Get your job. She's flight attendant now. I know. So maybe you can come see me when I move to Texas. Well, that's the idea. That's the idea. So I got to find a babysitter for my dogs, though. I have four dogs. I'm a crazy animal lover. Where did this love of taking care of others come from when you didn't get love so much yourself? 
maybe that's why. When my parents were raised that you didn't show love, especially on my dad's side, didn't show love at all. My mom would show love occasionally, but she was a codependent with my dad. I was abused. We talked about that. All three of us girls were abused by my dad, mentally, physically, had that to deal with as a young child. But I, I, from a very early stage in my life, I liked caring for animals, for people. It just came naturally to me. You know, I was always the, like the one who came in during fights or something and was like, you know, trying to make everything right. I thought I wanted to be a nurse. First thing was a vet. I mean, every little girl, right? My sister want wanted to be a vet. I wanted to be a vet. It's like, that would be so cool, you know, especially since I loved animals. But then I found out it's seven years of college. I'm like, no, not a good thing. <laughs> That's quite the commitment, right? You're yeah. like, I think I'll just play with the animals. And, and my grades weren't that good. So I was like on an average C student. Yeah. So I, now you talk about too, like where you thought you would be. Like some people have that mapped out. Like, and, and you design plans for other people now of emergency preparedness plans. Like I was not one of those people that like dreamed of my wedding dress or like, dreamed of what I was going to be. Like, as a girl, you're in this abusive home. Like, did you have dreams other than being a vet of like... I had aspirations of being a vet or a nurse. I didn't know whether I'd be able to succeed financially wise. And I didn't have a really good self-esteem of myself. That was very difficult, you know, because when you're being told all the time that you're not worthwhile, especially because my grades weren't good and my other two sisters were straight A's, students. Ooh, that's so, really hard. I got called a klutz all the time. I was told one time when I knocked my front teeth out, oh, you're ugly and you're going to cost us a ton of money. We're not going to get those fixed until you're older. How did that happen? I was climbing up a slide. My sisters and I were very adventurous and the slide was in the water. And so they were climbing up it. Well, when I climbed up it, it was wet. And of course it was, but I fell down and hit my teeth and my teeth came out. I didn't even know what had happened, but it, it hurt. So I went running to my mom and dad and was like, you know, I'm bleeding. What's going on? And, you know, yeah, that, that was the first thing he said. They're ugly and yeah. So, and then I didn't get them fixed until I was 16. That does a lot for your, con uh, for your self-confidence. It, you know, and my hair, I always had my hair short, but kids around would, you know, they bullied you. Everyone gets bullied when you're a kid. I, I think that it's part of being a kid. And I got called half boy, half girl because I had such short hair. So did you ever want to grow it out or? I did. I did. When, it, when I was in junior high, I grew it out. Yep. Just kind of as, as a rebellion. And I had it through high school. I was pretty much long hair through high school. And then once I started getting older, I started, you know, trying different styles. And, you know, I had the Dorothy Hamill look at one time. That's cute. <laughs> I want to know too, like when you got your teeth fixed, what was that like? Originally it was, I had braces on. So we had to wait until the braces were off. I had to have some type of surgery where they removed a little bit. Of, I had some space in between my teeth. So they removed some of the tissue. And then once I had the teeth, the fillings put in, I just felt I could smile. I could smile again. You have a beautiful was, smile. Thank you. Thank you. That does. It starts building up your confidence. I started dating. That helped my confidence a little bit. You know, guys were interested in me. You know, wow, okay. I think, you know, as I grew older, I think that my sisters kind of still reflected on the abuse and it changed them mentally. 
whereas I felt that I was going to do something and I did have a pathway to get out of the house. And that was like one of the biggest things that I was thinking about is how I'm going to get out of the house. And I was going to do that through having a good job and having some idea of what I was going to do. So I started out thinking I was going to be a nurse. That was out of the picture. And I found out that it took four years and I didn't have enough money for four years of college. So I went to a two year, two and a half year college, junior college, got my associate's degree in respiratory care. And you ended up doing that for a decade. 20, oh. Well, 10, year, 10 years in the hospital and then went into the home care division and was a clinical liaison position where I'm going to patients and checking them on them and coordinating their care for home whether it was durable medical equipment or nursing. So that's what I did for within the hospital in Park Ridge. And I, I did that for, well, I'm still doing it. So I can't say, but I'm now in sales and marketing. So I kind of changed roles and responsibilities and kind of stepped up the ladder, so to speak. Were there any wrenches in your plan, like transitioning from your parents' house to? Oh, when I did that, my sister, I had to have a roommate. So my sister was coming in from Spain because her husband was stationed overseas, who was in the Navy. And so she had two ch young children, one, two, and one, seven or eight months. And so living with two children at the age of 19, crazy. I wanted a puppy, so I brought a puppy in the home. Well, that lasted like three weeks because he was like biting everything. And his sister was like, we, we didn't do, agree to a puppy. And then I had financial issues. So there were a lot of things that were going on but I vowed that I was going to stay out of my house because I didn't want to be exposed to that again. And when I was 25, I remember this clearly. My dad and my mom and I were going to have a, like a little dinner out on the patio. And I somehow managed to spill something on the table. And he called me a klutz. And I said, no way, not anymore. We're not doing this ever again. You are not allowed to abuse me, both physically, mentally, whatever you will never see me again unless you do something different. And that was the start of forgiveness kind of for what he had done. You said he even told you at that moment that he loved you. Yeah, he did. I didn't believe it though. Didn't believe it. Not at first. I mean, how can you do that to your daughter or your daughters? I mean, I just, I don't get it. I don't understand. To this day, I still don't understand. But how could my mom allow that? I think that's what everyone would want to know. Yeah. So my mom still thinks that it didn't happen, but she's, she was there. She saw it. She was standing right there when some of the times that he would feel us up. That's just wrong. So she was a codependent. She loved my dad and would do anything for my dad. After I had Megan, you know, I'd invite them to her first birthday or her graduation or whatnot. They never came. Never came. Some birthdays, yes, but most of them, no. First dance recital, no. Did you really want them there though? I did, otherwise I wouldn't have invited them. I mean, I wanted them to be part of my daughter's life. They were part of my niece's life, but for some reason, my mom thought my dad was more important and what he was doing was more important. So they didn't come. That was hard, that was really hard on me, but I think it made me stronger. I think it made me more independent and more confident. One thing that you said to me too is that something that you feel like your dad appreciated about you is that you do stand up for yourself. Yeah. I, I think that he does not like women who are not confident, that are not able to stand up for themselves. I think he appreciated that in me. 
and saw that I was going somewhere with my life. And I think that made a difference. You know, I told you he only had said, I love you to me three times. Once was when I was 25, when after that incident. The second time was when I was in the hospital. And the third time was when he was dying. Not a lot. Now my mom and I, we say each other to each other, we love each other every single day that we see each other or talk on, on the phone. She's changed. She changed after my father died, which is very interesting. I mean, she has some memory loss, but she really has changed. She knows how important her family is. And she admitted some of the things, admitted some of the things that he did wrong, like mental abuse. But she still won't admit that there was physical abuse. But at this point in my life, I don't care. It doesn't affect me anymore. My dad's gone. I feel good. I'm confident in what I'm what I can do as a person, as a woman what I'm able to accomplish. I've done so much. You have. I got three jobs. Let's talk about that too. You okay. have been an employee, yes. an entrepreneur, a mom, and you're continuing your education. I don't want a dull moment. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm still at Advocate. I've been there for 40 years, celebrating my 40 years. That's a big deal. They don't make them like you anymore. No, no. The other thing was I started Collaborative Healthcare Urgency Group in 2001 after 9-11. So I started that. And that was because there was a need. And I saw that need. Let's talk about the gaps. There was a gap in emergency preparedness for healthcare facilities in general. And after 9-11, it really came to fruition that because I was leading a team of the continuum of care for healthcare, and we saw that if there was going to be something that happened in Chicago or O'Hare, healthcare might be affected. The hospital might have to move patients out. How were they going to do that? There were no plans. How were nursing homes, if something happened within the nursing home, how were they going to get patients out? So we put a plan together to fill those gaps. When we did that, it was amazing. People started coming and going, you've got something good. So in about 2003, applied for our nonprofit. I had no idea what I was doing. And I was like, do we need a lawyer for this? <laughs> like, no, you don't need a lawyer. So I put applied for it. And in 2005, we got our nonprofit status. There was a guy, Ellie Pick, who owned his own nursing home and was really one of my mentors and almost like a father to me, father figure to me. He believed in what I was doing. He built up my confidence. He was my mentor and a coach and said, you can do this. You've been leading this the whole time. You can do this. So as a non-for-profit, you have to have a executive director. You have a to have a board. So we started building that team and they wanted me to be the executive director. I was like, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And they said, you know, Ellie was like, yeah, you can. You've been doing this. You've been leading this. Just continue to do what you're doing. I said, okay, uh, I'll try. And I had to go to my regular work and say, I've got this other opportunity. Is it going to be a conflict of interest? They're like, no, you're going to nursing homes. You're getting more patients, possibly. So no, go for it. That's wonderful. And yeah. it probably one complemented the other. They did. So I continued on that pathway. And now we've grown from those five or seven organizations to nationally. Nationwide, baby. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. It's that really is cool. really cool. I know in your last interview and how we met was this yeah. Spotlight series. Yeah. I was working on producing that with Yitz Rubin. Shout out to Yitz Rubin. You were saying that, you know, things kind of stopped down a little bit for you during, during COVID, COVID and that you would think, you know, COVID is a pandemic and people are needing new modifications in their operations and plans. What has happened since? So it's funny that you asked that because in when we had the bird flu, 
there was a large group of organizations from public health to the healthcare field, hospitals, just a lot of people coming together to write plans to prevent and be prepared should there ever be a pandemic. And they talked about having national stockpile. They talked about having making sure that everyone was prepared in case there was another large event like that. You go towards the pandemic and unfortunately, where was the PPE? It wasn't there. Nursing homes were receiving patients. That was not one of the plans that was put together, at least in our area. You saw what was happening in New York and New Jersey. People were dying left and right. It's because they're, that's not the place for them. The nursing home is a breeding ground for any kind of disease. So when that happened, we were just amazed that people had no plans and that the federal government really didn't have any plans. And they wanted to come to you for PPE and staffing and things like that. Yeah. Have you tried to delve into that at all? Those are we, big. We did try to delve into it, but it, it's not our forte. I mean, mm -hmm. we did some group purchasing with a company out of Ohio, but everyone has group purchasing. So just everyone was in the same situation. Couldn't get PPE. There was a shortage. You have done some pretty crazy evacuations, though. Can we talk about the pipe bursts or disasters are happening left and right? Yes. And even if you have a plan in place, parameters can change. Oh, drastically, within <laughs> minutes. So the idea is to have a preparedness plan and to be able to have the knowledge on what you should do in, in an event. And yes, you have to have flexible plans because those plans can change. One of our first incidents that we dealt with was a facility lost power. It was an assisted living facility in Buffalo Grove. First one that we ever did. And there were 90 some patients residents there and they had moved them from the facility across the street to a school in a gymnasium. And it was on a Sunday and it was hotter than Hades because it was in August. So we knew that a lot of those people could not stay, no cots to bring, no medicine. They called the Red Cross. The Red Cross was like, we don't do that. You know, these patients can't stay here for long-term. We don't have a mutual aid agreement. So there were all these things. So we ended up finding places where we could send the patients. And that's what we did. Tim Sashko was the fire chief back then. And he goes, I had no idea about you guys. We need to spread the word. So he started spreading the word to other fellow firefighters. But yeah, as soon as we, we got done, that started part of our growth. That was in 2005. But then we've had pipes that burst. We didn't have recovery until 2020. So we did not have the mechanism to provide generators or to respond to floods in the nursing facility. When a pipe burst, now we can that provides the full continuum of response and recovery because we can help them recover if there's mold or if there's cleanup that needs to be done even infectious disease we can help with that situation now so that's changed a lot we've practiced on earthquakes we were able to work with a company that prepares every year and we did a tabletop exercise and a full-scale exercise i remember hiding underneath the table that was pretty interesting there's been fires in facilities that we've responded and had, you know, after the fire department has gotten them out and we've had to place them in other facilities. So we've done a lot of different evacuations. But the main point now is to keep people sheltered in place. It's not the primary to evacuate. Mm -hmm. So things have kind of changed in that respect too, because the, the thought process is to keep them inside the building and last resort is evacuation. 
So there was a situation that I'm not, I won't mention any names or any places. There was a facility that received a bomb threat. It was right near the hospital where I worked and they were told to shelter in place, which they were supposed to do. That was very interesting. It was the first experience, but they felt that they were well prepared because of all the education that we provided them with Chuck, through Chuck. Two years after that event, there was an incident in the same facility a worker that was upset with things that were not going his way. He actually no longer worked there. He came back and he threatened violence with active shooter. Oh my God. He went into the building. They closed down the building. Police were called. He left the building. They were on lockdown for literally a week. They could not find him, but he said he was coming back and he was going to kill them all. That's terrifying. Mm -hmm. The director of the facility felt that they were also well prepared for that event. She said, Siri is all hell, but she said that everyone would remain safe because of the training that they got from us. We have firefighters, we have police officers, we have emergency management, healthcare myself, that do a lot of the training and education to prepare organizations. I kind of do like the healthcare, the infectious disease and those types of things. Also the evacuation, because I, I helped write those plans, so. But yeah, things have changed a lot in society. If you look back 20 years ago, eh, flood might happen every once in a while. You might have an incident every one or two years if you're lucky. And what I'm thinking about too, I know in one story you talked about people in nursing homes having to be carried out. I mean, there's so many people who aren't ambulatory. Like if you have 90 to 100 residents in your facility and everyone needs carrying out, you better have a really good plan in place. That's wow. a disaster. It is a disaster. It's a disaster upon a disaster. So in one of the situations that helped us with our planning is that there was a facility in 1986 and they had flooding of the Des River. And the Des River came up around the building, the nursing home, and it was all the way up to the first floor. And they actually had water in their elevator shaft. So they couldn't use the elevators. The firefighters were called. They evacuated that nursing home and they evacuated them any way that they could, curing them down, Flights of stairs, it took nine hours to evacuate about 300 residents. And then they didn't have any buses or ambulances couldn't get in the water because their diesel would ruin the engines. So they eventually used Keyshawn buses, which are tour buses. And you know that they've got steps going up and then another step going up here. So the firemen literally had to, they were exhausted by the end of the day. So we teach evacuation techniques to help so that nursing can help. Anybody within the, the building can actually help. We also ask them to buy evacuation chairs or medi-sleds. Um, there's all kinds of devices to help with evacuation now. So we try to encourage them to utilize those types of evacuation tools in order to evacuate. But years ago, they didn't have those. And, you know, most of the places that you're helping, they have plans in place, but I'm sure you're finding things that they wouldn't even think of to do. No. Communication is one of the biggest things that fails. So you might have, you know, your landlines as your primary. Landlines go down. You have your cell phones. Cell towers can go down. How do you communicate with people? How do you communicate with the outside world? It's important, but you have to adjust. And that's why you have to be flexible because you don't know what when it's going to happen. And if it's going to happen, we kind of say like we're almost like an insurance plan. 
We're here to help. We'll be there for you 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days a year, should you have an incident, and we'll help guide you through those types of events. We know people on the outside. If you can get a hold of us, we'll help you get a hold of the right people. So it's very important to have key relationships with your community, with churches, synagogues, it doesn't matter, public health, emergency manage, police, fire, all of those people are so key, and even businesses within your community, to help during a disaster. Because it's time for all of you to get together. Not just Chug, but everyone. And we saw that during the pandemic, really. You know, at first people were coming together to help each other. It seems that people have gone away from that. They're not helping each other. They're, it's like there's so much hatred and so many people are against each other these days. It just scares me because, as you know, I'm a helper. And I, I see that and it just is really, really disturbing to me. What about Biden's new changes? Oh, changes in the regulations? Yeah. Okay, so there are a lot of changes that are coming. For instance, one of them is they're going to help you with surveyors and that surveyors are going to be hired in order to help the facilities. I don't see that as a helper. I see it as a hindrance. And a lot of the facilities that I'm talking to that are our members feel the same way because surveyors typically are there to point out what's wrong and then they cite you for what's wrong. They're not there to say, hey, okay, you've got a deficiency in your emergency operation plan. Here's what we think you should do. Call Chug. <laughs> but they don't do that. They're there just to point things out, give you the tags, and then fine you if you need to be fined. That sounds like parents. <laughs> don't take, take me back there. <laughs> It's true though, right? Like yeah. we point out things all the time about how we want our kids to improve, but are we really giving them the plans to do that? Well, we should be, but it doesn't always work out that way, does it? I mean, look at me. It didn't it didn't work out that way, but I can give plans to people to try and do something with their facilities. So maybe I'm going around that as being a parent too. My daughters and my kids have turned out pretty much all right, you know, so I think I've done a good job with that. But getting back, he also has decided that the ratio of nursing staff to patient needs to be upgraded. So that's going to change in an already complicated staffing issue. Definitely. There's not enough nurses. During the pandemic, a lot of nurses have quit. Doctors have quit. A ton of burnout. A ton of burnout. And so making those plans to try and get more staffing ratio, it's the wrong time. Maybe in a few years, but help them. How are they going to get more staff? What is the plan? There's no plan. It's just, this is what we're going to do. This is nursing home re reform. This is what we're planning on making you do. Some of the other things he's doing is planning on increasing the amount of a deficiency, a fine. So instead of $21,000, he's proposing a million dollars. How can a facility that's already having difficulty keeping their doors open because they're not receiving enough patients, they don't have staff to begin with. How are they going to be able to survive? There's already been 300 facilities that have closed. They're predicting another 400 just this year. That's huge. That's catastrophic. It is. And there needs to be the skilled nursing facilities. We need to have them around. What's the plan in order to help them? What he's doing for emergency preparedness is if they don't pass a emergency preparedness survey, life safety survey, they'll get dinged. You know, they're already getting dinged. But 
infection prevention is huge. It was huge during the pandemic. Some of the things that they, they happened during the pandemic did help out facilities. So they would send somebody from the CDC or local nurse that's trained in infection prevention and control to help the facilities. That's the way it should be. Don't just say, okay, you're not doing it right. You get a deficiency and you get fined. Let's find a way to help. There are programs in place that they have identified certain nursing homes that need to be helped, both financially and with programs and education. But the program was put in place about five years ago and it really hasn't come to fruition. So one of the things that Biden's plan is to make that better. So that's a good thing. Let's see how it rolls out. I don't know. Facilities need finances to keep the lights on, to be able to afford chug, you know, to for emergency preparedness and other consultants. There are so many regulations that are passed and the pandemic is a prime example. You saw a healthcare facility that thought they were doing something right. They missed the memo. They missed that, the, no, it's supposed to be done this way now. You have to give all your numbers on the patients on how many COVID patients you have. How many patients have been vaccinated? How many of your staff have been vaccinated? All of that has to be reported on a regular basis. And that's just a small fraction of what they have to report. It's amazing that they survive. And now assisted living facilities are having to follow suit. So they're going to be pretty soon having to follow Joint Commission, having to follow certain regulations for CMS. It's just healthcare is changing. And you are continuing your education. I am. Because healthcare is changing, right? And you want to stay on top of all this stuff. I, my degree was in healthcare management. And I decided this year, I'd taken a few years off during the, the pandemic. And I decided this year when my daughter was becoming a flight attendant and was going to literally fly the coop, that I needed something to fulfill my nights. So I decided to be go back to school. I love it. And my bachelor's degree will be finished in the fall. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. yeah. It will be in liberal arts. So I won't be taking all the classes for healthcare, but I'm keeping up on it. I'm reading all about it. One of the things we talked about was social media. And there's so much information from your podcast. I called it Go Daddy the other day. Shame on me. Better call Daddy. <laughs> Better call Daddy. I knew that. I was like, what? Yeah, I, I think that that is one way in order to keep up on what's changing and what's changing so rapidly. I've been commenting and putting in information, you know, for our, our readers, for Chug. We've been trying to keep them in the loop on our news and through our blogs and through emails. We only do social media. We only do LinkedIn. We don't feel that Facebook and some of the other, you know, it's just too complicated. So we're focusing on that because there are entrepreneurs there. There are leaders in healthcare that we think that we can make better information and provide information to them. So we're continuing to do that. One thing too that I have found is that business is personal, right? There's this whole like no like and trust factor. And when you have conversations like this, where you tell your entire story, that helps people know you on a different level. Yeah, it does. I think I was a little skeptical on, on sharing some of the things. I think we're going to talk about another topic in a little bit, maybe um, about abortion. Let's do it. But I think, yeah, they, people trust you more and you're not government. You're a regular business. And so they tend to trust you even more. So abortion is a big topic right now in the news every day. And my feeling about abortion is going to be different than yours or someone else's. I had first had an experience when I was 18. I got pregnant. 
I was on the pill. Who knows why? Probably because I've got autoimmune disease. And I saw what happened with my mom and dad and the fact that I wanted to protect them. I, don't, I still don't understand that. But I knew it wasn't right for me. I knew it wasn't right for the guy I was with. We were going to have a baby boy. Oh, my gosh. So I was far enough along. And that affected my whole, that's affected my whole life. Really? Yeah. It's affected my whole life. I couldn't get pregnant for a long time. And I ha I've had two abortions. So one was then, and then on, another one was when I was 28. And I was with a guy who I was thought I was going to marry. I actually had a ring in the whole nine yards, and I got pregnant, and he broke up with me. It's awful. So I didn't really have a choice at that point. I couldn't see myself raising a child on my own. So it was a personal choice. Would I do things different now? Maybe, but maybe not. And everybody has the right to make that choice. I agree. And... I think everyone's story is different. You and I talked about someone who had been through abuse and had gotten pregnant from the abuse. Rapists. Someone gets pregnant from a rape. I had a lady on my show, Tessa Greenspan. I'm going to give her a shout out right now. She is the product of that. And her mom told her that she was a child of God. Isn't that such a beautiful thing to say? It is. She never met her dad. So how did she deal with it? And her mom too. Oh my goodness. Oh, she had such a hard life. And it's interesting because she had more than one daughter. Tessa was really like you, like, you know, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to find a way. And she was super positive and post positivity all the time. And it's amazing. But she had a sister that it was completely the opposite, completely the opposite. My one sister deals with depression. And then my other sister just can't handle a male relationship. And I've chosen not to. That's my own choice. I just don't need a man in my life to fulfill me. I can do things on my own. I'm proud of what I've done. I've raised my daughter from when the t time she was 15 all by myself. That is truly remarkable. Yeah, especially during the teenage years. But she's turned out great. She's turned out great. I and still... she just took on a new adventure. I mean, I'm so proud of that. I know. And you're continuing to take on new adventures. I mean, that, I feel like, helps you be resilient. It does. It does. I keep on challenging myself. I think one of the things that I like to do is challenge myself. I have found a lot out about myself. I am like my dad in a lot of ways. I'm stubborn. I am a control freak. I'll admit that. I like to make sure that things go smoothly. If things are not, I try to take over. But I've learned over the last two years not to do that anymore and to let people shine because people have their own special heroes and powers and they are able to do things that maybe I should just let them do them. I feel like I'm coming to that place in my life too, where I also have that control freak in me and like I want things to be this a certain way. <laughs> I definitely well. have that. But you know, you cannot force people to be a certain way. No, and the more you loosen up, I feel like the more peace is around you. Yeah. Well, and the more people, you know, you attract people that are like you. So if you're not as controlling, you're going to tend to attract people that are the same way. And that's what I'm trying to kind of mold, chug into. I'm 60 years old. I know I don't look like it, but I'm 60 years old and I have to see a successor to what I built. I don't want it to just fall to pieces once I retire. I'll probably still be working until I'm 80, but you know, I want somebody to do more most of the, the, the work for me, just for me to oversee it. I have to start looking for somebody to, that I can mentor and train to take over. Amen. That's one of the things that I have to let go of. And it's hard when you've built a baby. Just like you are letting your daughter become a flight attendant and now fly away, yeah. right? Yeah, I might have to do the same thing with my, with my baby. 
Chug, do you want to ask my dad anything? Since abortion is such a big deal, what does he have to say about abortion? Ooh, that's a controversial one. I love it. It is. But I'd like to hear his opinion. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. You know, I had a little interview with Connie, with you, Rena. That was post this interview. And, of course, I never heard this version for that interview. And I have to admit, my jaw is on the ground. I just was able to get it back into my mouth. I'm just shocked of everything that she's had to overcome and what a wonderful, compassionate person Connie is and how strong of a leader and how she also even mentions in this episode that the work that she's doing, she would like someone to continue her legacy even in improvements in healthcare, where we had just a great discussion. And of course, in this episode, overcoming abuse, overcoming mental and physical abuse, the strife of family, and yet also touching on a very, very important subject of abortion and raising your own children. It's just amazing how cool and calm and how she has such a positive outlook on life and yet has experienced all of these avenues. And she's a wonderful person. And yet on some of this, I will agree with her on. And obviously, I have a different opinion on the abortion issue. But a very interesting new perspective that she's given me, it takes a lot of thought on that subject where this is an alternative view that I'm not sure that she might be right and I might be wrong. I'm not sure. Yeah, she's an incredible human. Now you see why I wanted her to interview me. Wow, just incredible. But what's interesting is that some people that are mentally or physically abused, where it affects them their whole life, where they're not able to step up and overcome it. And yet the more abuse and the more issues that she had made her tougher and tougher and tougher, but not as a bad person, not as a person that is resentful or a person that is scorned. This is a person who just works harder and harder to figure out a positive way of coming out of this black circle or black hole that she might have been in, where she's looking to better not only her life, but everyone around her. Yet at the same time, when she was going through some very difficult times, decided that with the relationships that she was having, the issue of bringing a baby into the world at a certain period in her life, where it means she thinks everything of her daughter, and she's raised her to be a wonderful person, but chose to actually abort two children. It just seems to be so contradictory to me that I'm going to try to do my best to comment on it. And you have to be in the right state of mind at all times. And sometimes adversity can overcome even the best of us, where we're just not sure if we can handle it at the time, is all I can think of. Because I, I believe that, that she should have either given the baby away for adoption, or at least tried to see if she could make it on her own and form new relationships, even though it would have been a very difficult assignment. I'm sure it was a difficult assignment doing it with her daughter. That's what's so peculiar about this assessment is that she chose to go this route and raise a baby pretty much on her own and yet also made the choice not to do it on other occasions. So maybe the question is, Connie, back at you, is that should you have risen to the occasion and raised one, two, or all three children, even if it meant doing it on your own? It's an interesting question. Yeah. 
I mean, she also saw her sister have a struggle. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very understandable choosing the other way. But the fact is, is that was it another lesson for her to overcome to be stronger? And she, at that time, didn't look at it that way or even with all of her strength and all of the wonderful things she's overcome to be the strong lady that she is. She wasn't able to do it during that period of time would be my assessment. And maybe that's even made her stronger since, but at the cost of a life, which I wouldn't be able to do. And as you know, the way circumstances turned out, that's why you're here. Right. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have empathy for her. It was me too. I, yeah. I, I can't imagine being in that situation. Thank goodness I wasn't. Very, very tough situation. But the truth of the matter is, is that sometimes we feel like we're cornered mm-hmm. and the walls are surrounding us and it can happen to anybody. This reminds me of even the story of John McCain, a real tough dude. And, you know, his father was an admiral in the Navy and he got captured in Vietnam. They had made a deal for his release and he did not want to leave his men or leave the captives or be treated with special treatment and be released. And those people that had him captured punished him, wanting him to break because he was a cocky son of a gun and they wanted to break him. And they broke every bone in his body. They beat him and tortured him like probably no prisoner in the history of the world to get him to read a statement against where the captives had him read a script. And as you know, he became a very influential senator and even ran for the president of the United States. So he's overcome such adversities in his life and yet put in a box, even trying to be a hero. Like I said, it can break any man, the type of punishment that he went through and the type of adversities that Connie has faced to be such the amazing person that she is. She wasn't ready to handle maybe that breakup with that boyfriend and decided to end that baby's life. Let's face it, he even was having trouble having children. So he wisely uh, stated that babies come, as my mom would say, is a gift from God, and that we should treasure the baby no matter how it gets here. And sometimes the baby, the way it's raised and the experiences that it goes through deserve the same chance as all of us. How about the beautiful life that she's lived and and how she's changing healthcare in so many ways? And she's so dedicated, even though she's critical about some of the methods and some of the things that go on, she continues, wants to educate herself. And instead of just picking out something that's wrong, you know, like uh, with all the regulations, uh, it's so easy to say, well, you got to do this and you got to do that and you got to report this and report that. But they don't give you the answers. They don't give you the help that you might need. They don't give you the understanding of what you're going through to run a business or to really help these people. They're very good at pointing the finger and criticizing. But isn't it really true that anybody can do that? But finding a way to make it better and to continue to encourage people to do the best that they can to improve a situation and come up with unique answers, that's what gets something done. That's what really moves the ball forward. And all these woulda, coulda, shouldas, and you should have done that and should have done this, that doesn't necessarily help do a better job for the future, does it? There's plenty of people doing that. (laughs) Oh, for sure. For sure. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts. 
on LinkedIn.com. 